All right. So listen, right? We just went live, but um, my wife sitting over here. Can I can I see it? I just want to I want to present this, right? So like, this is what she's eating, right? Like, look at this. Look at this giant cake. Like, I want now. I just want this giant cake, but no, she got this right before we started streaming, and now I gotta wait. You know, until it killing me guys i mean seriously how's everyone doing today um a little bit late but uh right now flying solo right so it's just me here yeah. we might we might get scott uh i told i sent him the info we'll see if he shows up i'm not sure that he will but that's okay um i have you know like a slideshow and some script and everything that i want you know i want to cover but in all honesty, this is also meant to be kind of like a free flow conversation, kind of discuss um, tournament in general. You know, I think that this weekend was a very interesting amount of conversations that I had with people. Um, some complaints, some everyone, you know, excited about things. But it, I thought it was just really interesting to hear everyone's like thought process of how they were treating the weekend, how they were handling the weekend. Um and just like, uh, you know, a lot of really, really interesting differences uh, of opinions, which I think is really cool because it, it shows like the difference of our community and, you know, the different layers of players and things like that. And I just I think it's a really interesting subject of where we are right now, um, especially coming into organized play. So before I get into it, I got a I got a couple shout outs. Right. So we got RJ Richardson now. In the meta report today, for anyone that hasn't watched it yet, uh, I called him Richard over and over and over again, and I apologize because his name is Richard. So thank you, RJ. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, thanks for coming out. You know, hit me up in the comments. My bad again about the names. I blame uh, everything but the actual truth of me not doing enough research to find out and figure out and remember that your name was RJ. My bad. Uh, our boy, Dick Burns, right? Still driving North Carolina because that's uh, ridiculous. Uh, his wife commented earlier on the Meta Report, had me cracking up that his kids now think he's famous, which is hysterical. We're going to get into Dick uh, a little bit later and through my tournament report and the conversations we had, but it was pretty comical to me for sure. Um, I'm really hoping everyone's having a good time so far. I love that you're still driving to North Carolina, but you're hanging out with us. That's awesome. If you were at SCGCon this weekend, definitely hit me up in the comments. Let me know how you finished. Uh, you know, share your story if you want in the comments. That's cool. You know, I do my best to you know report on it. But hey, if you're here, you got something to say. You know, feel free to keep it nice. Obviously, let's be friendly out there, right? But no, seriously. Um, what is up, guys? How are you guys doing? Seriously, uh, Braden, hanging out. Oh, we got him. He's coming. We we got him to the stage. Sorry. Scott, he might be late, but he's here, guys. We He made it. He made it. <laughs> I was watching The Brothers soon. The Brothers what? Soon. It's a show on Netflix. Oh, okay. What? I mean, we, we can go off topic. What's it about, Scott? I don't even, I've never heard of this. What, what do you got? Is it it's good? It's Chinese, Chinese triads. Chinese triads. That's totally off topic. But it's funny. It's really good. Michelle right. Yeoh's in it. It's really good. Highly recommend. There you go. There you go. The uh, Brothers yeah. soon. Check it out. hashtag not sponsored by netflix there you go no no. Uh, (laughs) not sponsored by john cho his house was in this one 
Oh, there you go. It's true. It's true. Oh, all right. So people are coming in from everywhere. Love it. Uh, thank you guys so much for you know enjoying. I've been watching MetaZoo drama all weekend. That's whew, you should have been doing something else. That's been going on for a while though. It's like at least a week now. I don't even know. I think it was last Monday that it happened. So yeah, what dramas are left to watch? I don't know. Uh, I love it that Scott. I love when if everyone only sees it in the videos. I catch it every single time. But the little moon and Scott like goes into a hole. Oh, that's because of the green. that's because the green screen thing. <laughs> it happens every once in a while, and it cracks me up. Um, but yeah, now now every time it happens, someone's going to see it, and they're going to see it, and they can read it. But uh, yeah, see, it goes right through <laughs> me. I don't know. It's because the green screen, Ugh. but the rest of it doesn't. I don't get it. But only the moon because it's like a. Solid, like whatever you know. Solid. There we go. Oh, we got some some friends on Facebook too. So uh about to do work and watch uh, some Lorcana videos. I'm sure I didn't mean doing Lorcana videos. So, um, yeah. All right. So Scott SCG Con this weekend. P.S. Scott hasn't seen the slides, but it's okay. He'll be able to follow along. I promise. I'm sure I'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So leading into the event, you know, it was a pretty foregone conclusion that Scott and I were going to play Ruby Amethyst um because we're not dumb right no i'm just kidding i'm not really coming at anyone that didn't play ruby amethyst uh and for what it's worth dick uh sent us a meta report of his own you know little tournament report and he wrote uh in the tournament report that i had said in one of the previous meta reports i'm not sure i probably said them in all of them i'm being honest that like if you're a competent player then you should probably show up to the event with ruby amethyst and you'll probably top eight um yep. and now this goes for any level of event obviously a smaller event more likely if you're a more competent player if you're better than your local area etc cetera, etc cetera. we can go down the whole rabbit hole here but what i can say for sure is that in now that i've confidently uh confirmed this all three events from this weekend all had five ruby amethyst decks in top eight listen there was 45 players 55 players 128 players no, not everyone playing Ruby Amethyst can top eight, but Ruby Amethyst did prove to give yourself the best position and best chance to top eight. So I was correct. And go Dick because he top eight at two of the events this weekend. So there we go. Um, Scott, let's talk to me about this list. This was our day one list. So uh, this is before any changes that we made to give a little bit of a story back to this, you know, the start of the week, we were kind of discussing how we would play it and what our list would look like. We had a, a friend down in um, Florida. I always forget exactly where Colby lives. You know, where does Colby live? Uh, he's like outside of Fort Lauderdale. Outside of Fort Lauderdale. His name's Colby Jarish. You guys might know him from the channel. Um, he's a teammate, I would say. Yeah, he's a teammate for sure. He's a really good player, really good friend. Known him for a couple of years now. We met him through Destiny, Star Wars Destiny. Uh, we have dogs on the screen. Do I have to get my dog now? Do I have to get? No, no, no. Just, All right. If not, I have to walk. If not, I have to walk. Him, so. Fair. Fair. Um, so, you know, he went and played this exact list uh, at his league this week. He went like 10 and 1 in games. And we're like, all right, cool. We'll play it. So Scott and I both played it. And we both did not do well on Friday. And I, I'm not blaming uh, the list. I'm not blaming our play. I'm not really blaming any of those things. I just think that like it didn't work out on Friday, but it was still enough of games to like get a lessons learned. So talk to me through your day, Scott. Oh, it was pretty mediocre. Um, 
I wouldn't say that my day was like for any reason, like you said, but I don't know. The deck just felt like too overtuned for what uh, was it like not general enough. Okay. Um, the Pascals are pretty bad. Um, they didn't do much. I felt like without having additional removal outside of basically the characters that like the Tremaine's couldn't do what they needed to do, which was actually take out characters that had any value. Um, so I don't know. I just feel like the list was kind of overtuned a bit that you can fly is like three of them was just like way too many. Like, so I don't know. It just felt very like one note kind of deal and it just didn't interact with the board well enough. So, I mean, it wasn't like, way different than what I eventually played on Saturday, but it just needed to be changed. I felt fair. Um, yeah. So I played against four different decks on Friday, which was good. It was like a kind of a good, uh, I guess wind up to the, you know, the foregoing future of the weekend. Sure. And there was definitely in all four matches, the Pascal just ended up being really poor. Um, so I definitely felt that Pascal was not going to be the best call for us that weekend. So he was definitely like the first car that we were like, we were pretty sure like in round three of Friday, we're like, yeah, that card's probably not going to make the cut neck tomorrow. <laughs> um, I think it was later on that night where we had talked, you know, after dinner, we had got back from the house. We were kind of chatting about it. And um, Lady Tremaine was the other one that came up. And it was just like, man, this card just wasn't as impactful um as it was at say pax unplugged you know pax yeah. unplugged scott and i played a deck to a top eight and a ninth place finish you know we were very happy with the way our list looked then so seeing and trying to learn from one event to another and honestly a setting from another setting you know it, now granted big time gap right you know start oh, yeah. the, start of the metagame to the end of the metagame obviously this list is pan shadows and you can flies and they weren't even being talked about in december or early december but it was still lessons learned of the weekend of going, okay, like this is what happened our first day. How do we, you know, what do we need to do to make the list better and, you know, more tuned towards us? Um, and I, I do think that overall, you know, we had learned the Pascals weren't really there. We had learned that we probably didn't need three you can flies. Uh, the Lady Tremaine's, you know, still a good card, but maybe it was an uninkable slot that we could play with, uh, which is a lot of good things learned. So, all in all, you know, shout out to the top eight on Friday. Five Ruby Amethyst, two Emerald Steel, one Ember Amethyst. Anyone that look watched the top eight today, this is another picture because I want it to be different, right? I want it to flip off the cross guys. Different angle. Um, but shout out to the eight players in the top eight here. Um, Scott, you know, seeing these numbers, 45 players that day. I don't know about you, but like, how many Ruby Amethysts do you think might have actually been in this 45 player tournament on Friday? Uh, I'd say like between 25 and 30, I, like a heavy, heavy percentage. Like I didn't see a lot of, you know, other things going around to be honest with you. I mean, there was a little bit of Amber steel that day that I saw, but not uh-huh. a lot. Right. I didn't see, you know, that much aggro or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I would say like 60 to 65%. So whatever that number is. So like, yeah, I mean, I don't know the number, but it, it wouldn't shock me if it was above 50%. Um, 
not even a little bit. I was just really curious. I wasn't sure, you know, we were in two kind of little different parts of the room. Uh, <laughs> you did get to walk around a little bit more than I did. Uh, so not much longer, but a little bit more. So I was just curious, maybe you'd seen more of the, you know, five Ruby Amethyst in top eight and, and let's, let's have this real talk, right? Scott? So I think this is a conversation that not enough people are having in a way, but we keep hearing that the reason, right? The reason why Ruby Amethyst is all in these top eights is because it's being played in such large numbers. Okay. Well, Scott, why is it being played in such large numbers? Because it's the most consistent deck that you can play. Right. Uh, another shout out to Dick Burns here, but in his tournament report, he wrote, when you're playing for just money, you don't have to win a tournament. You don't have to, you know, like hit some level to qualify, right? When you're doing just that, you should pretty much always play the most consistent deck. And I think he's like knocked it out of the park here. It's we're you're playing to give yourself a chance in the top eight to succeed further. And yep. Over the course of the entirety of the Rise of the Flood War metagame, Ruby Amethyst has been that. I, I mean, hmm. it's insane. So it's it's like this, I don't get it. Like, why why is it so difficult to understand that Ruby Amethyst is just this most consistent? And that's exactly why players are deciding to bring it to tournaments. Now, the cool thing about this, right, is that in this top eight, is that the other three decks are absolutely tuned to beat Ruby Amethyst. They're supposed sure. to be. They're supposed to be yeah. favored to beat it. Uh, spoiler alert for everybody in the room. The finals was Ruby Amethyst versus Ruby Amethyst, and they split. Just I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> just, I'm just letting it be known. <laughs> it's it's because the other decks need everything. Like th there's, there's, of course, like a series of plays that you can sketch out on paper or in your mind that if A, B, and C all happen, then I can't lose to Ruby Amethyst. But the problem is anything that you stumble with at all, they don't they they can have a mediocre hand and beat you. Like that's the thing. Like I like I can sketch out the best hands that I could have and you'll still beat it. If if your best hand beats my best hand, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. But there has to be no stumbling on your part. And I can and Ruby Amethyst can draw its way or remove its way out of it. Yeah. And and the other decks just can't do that when they have to hit like like in the discard case, like I have to hit. Bucky, John, and a Floodborne, like all in the first three turns, or like other decks have to hit one drop, two drop, three drop, have enough ink to do all that, and then somehow have a card draw to be able to recover on turn four because their hand is all blown. Like, you know, like it's fine. Like, I'm not saying that other decks aren't competent, but they're not as they have to have a more perfect, they have to sculpt a more perfect hand. Other decks are playing Exodia versus right. Ruby Amethyst. Exactly. That's a great way to point it out. If anyone's Yu-Gi-Oh references there, that's it. Yeah. It's right there. Um, oh, so can you define consistent? Yeah, I mean, like you have you have a game plan that plays just better cards at every drop, and that your early drops do not get removed from the board. Your 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 turn ones are all resistant to any kind of removal unless you're playing Pascal. Um <laughs> and then like your on two, you have either a card drawer in Cusco that if he gets removed, um, you draw a card, or your snake essentially draws you a card because your one drop comes back to your hand. And then on three, you either have a high lore character in like Mini, you have a card drawer in Maleficent. Not that we didn't, you know, I don't think we played that on day one. No, we, um, we, didn't, or, we didn't talk about that yet. <laughs> or you have um, an insane card in Fox. 
and the, which again could possibly draw you a card. So like you just are constantly recycling and reusing all your resources to where like you have a six or seven card hand, no matter what you do, unless you completely stumble. And even if you completely stumble, you still draw friends. And then that's like your absolute worst play on three yeah. is the hard cost, a card that still draws you two cards. Yeah. Like, so going into the, the mid game, unless your opponent like absolutely comes out of the gate, like no holds barred firing, you're still not behind with your worst starts. So like just all your cards just constantly are moving you towards getting you to the to the mid and late game with just a complete full grip of cards. Which which is even worse than that is that even on your worst starts, uh, with the addition of Pan Shadow to the deck, um, you know you can actually still have like these curve out hands that just literally flip the game right back into your favor. Um, so let's just say worst case scenario, we don't get our one, which means we don't have a snake on two right. and then we can't play Fox on three. So we got to play Minnie mouse. We got to play uh crab, you know, blind, basically, you know, in sure. some cases for other decks, you're talking about Maleficent. Maybe there's, I don't know. I've seen other stuff like Yizma or crap like that, right? Like whatever the hell it is, that's not the optimal one, two, sure. three. Sure. Well, pan shadow actually now helps you kind of turn it sideways also because pan shadow can come in it can take out an opponent with two, you know, a character with two willpower at less. And then Maui can come in, help you again. And then Lady Tremaine can come in, help you again. And, like, as long as your opponent didn't have, like, the absolute nuts, which is, you know, like, the Maleficent into the Pinocchio, into the Maleficent Lilo Pascal, whatever that is, right? Like, if your opponent does that and you don't have anything, well, then, of course, you're going to lose the game, right? Like, if your opponent is just playing for a couple lore and you know they get themselves like 10 that's great because you can still now close out the rest of the game ursula can steal a couple lore back for you and all of a sudden before you know it you you were able to recover play a be prepared for free and your opponent has nothing and you still have five cards in hand right that's the crazy thing about ruby amethyst is that they either have to be completely all in blown out and when they're not they're the only deck in the game that can consistently just go, yeah, well, I'm just going to just going to play the rest of my really great cards that even though I had a, the slowest start ever in this game, I'm still able to completely recover, completely remove all of the, your, all of your threats on the board, uh, take lore away from you. And while I did all that, I still drew three cards. <laughs> the game crazy. is much different than the chapter one game. Yeah. I'll tell you that much. All the every deck out there is better, and you know, like the way Ruby Amethyst played during chapter one is not the way it plays during chapter two. No, not at all. Chapter one, it would like, oh, I'll play a mirror and I'll draw a card on four. Like, there's no time for that anymore. Like, so the I, I will give the other decks credit that like they are more proactive, mm -hmm. but they're just not, just not like constantly threatening the board every single turn, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, or just at every like converted mana cost from one to nine. Right. right, right. <laughs> like, literally it's just, it's insane. Uh, all right. So a little bit of lessons learned here, Scott, yep. for the day two fixes for your deck here. Um, I made fun of Scott a little bit here, but he is, he, he's like dependent on Maleficent Sorceress. Yeah. So, so we had to get Maleficent Sorceress back into Scott's deck. Uh, we went down on Tremains. We went down You Can Flies. We added 
the teeth and ambitions. Um, I think that's pretty much it, right? Um, yeah, oh, and we flipped Pascal, so we we, yeah. we got our we got our mini mouses back, <laughs> right? And I think that's it. Yeah, I think that, so. that looks right. Yeah. So, uh, wh- what was the, the like, those key factors in getting you know to, to this level of comfortability? It's about I think it was like a ten card switch. The thing with Maleficent for me is like I know she does not massively impactful, but like. I just find that when I don't have her that I run out of cards, like, because she still is like a walking like action. She's still going to do two damage to something. She's still going to quest for lore, but she can be bounced back and redraw a card like, and like you or uses ink or something like that. I just find her to be like, I don't know, very, very, I don't know. I just feel like I run out of cards if I don't play her. I call it, I personally think it's just safe. Yeah. So like you could play a more silver bullet card. Um, you know, like you could have played more crabs. Um, you know, it, you could have played fidgets, right? Like you could have played other tech answers in that position that fit the role of turn three, what I can do. Or we can just play a two two that draws a card. Yep. Which is yep. what I, that's how I feel about it, in all honesty. Um I don't know. Me. I let you talk me into it, so I played her too. <laughs> like it's for good. me, I've always been comfortable not needing her and yeah, that's fine. That's and fine. utilizing that slot as just like another two cards in the deck that are in flex positions. But I did feel like the way the weekend was going, that having just just the safe card that can come into play when I needed to, draw me a card, you know, almost always sing friends on the other side because I don't think any other character in the game has sung that song more than her since yeah. chapter one. Yeah. So I get it. You know, I, I can respect it. Um, nothing really against it. Now, Scott, I know you didn't have like the best day ever, but you know, talk me through some of your uh, your day. Uh, so I went three and three. Um, I lost to a Ruby Amethyst Mirror with somebody that was eventually, I think, on the bubble for top sixteen in the last round, and then wound up losing a mirror when he. Um, when he went that far, um, I lost one zero and would have won the second game if I had like a few more turns. And the only reason that game one took so long is because I literally just, if I would have had one more turn, I would have won. Or if he had one more turn, he would have won type situation. So it's like who draws goats at the end basically is what happened. So like that game took like 35 minutes or I couldn't just concede it early. Um, uh, then I played against Sapphire Steel. Um, then I played against Emerald Steel and lost in three games. Um, and then I just kept staying in at X one. I think, was I one, two or two, one? I guess I was two, one. I don't remember. I played in round three, but anyway, I wound up being three, three when it was all said and done. And then I just dropped. Yeah. That's fair. Three mirrors, I think. What was that? I think I put, yeah, I played three mirrors. Okay. Three mirrors. Sounds about right for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah. I played four of them myself, so I I, I know how you feel. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for me, I I went with a bigger change. I went to the Arthur package. Like, this is a deck that we kind of started with in Packs Unplugged, where you know we had, I think it was four Arthurs at the time and two LeFou. So it was it was less on this like combo oriented thought process for. Um, Arthur at the time, more just value for Arthur. Of course, what we have learned from Pax Unplugged to now is that Pan Shadow is likely the most 
underrated card in this deck at this point and i cannot believe that it's still under a dollar and when i say this that like i'm dead ass serious if you do not own them you should go buy a play set of them because i think the card's only going to go up in value i think it's that good uh but besides that you know i went in with the arthur package which was the big addition i added goofies i didn't play any lady tremains at all and we, we can t have a small discussion about that but I still didn't play any uh, Teeth and Ambitions. Even the Ambitions for me, you know, a lot of that through testing was just like a card that I felt I didn't actually need anymore, where I do see the, the safety blanket of it. I can make an argument of why you might want it or why you might need it, but it really comes down to that. There's also a lot of occasions where if you have to play Teeth and Ambitions early, you're strapping your own hand for ink resources yeah, yeah, sure. And when you do that, you might be okay on turn two, but you're probably worse on turn five if you just continue to draw too many uninkables. And this is a position I just didn't want to be put in, so I didn't want to have to feel the like the need to play that card early. And what we had realized is that Teeth and Ambitions was probably a key factor as to why Lady Tremaine is actually better than you know we were giving her credit for on day one which is why we included it in your list. Since I took Lady Tremaine completely out, right. I felt the, like no need whatsoever to play Teeth of Ambitions. Um, and I was still just as comfortable playing You Can Fly. There was even games where uh, I played You Can Fly on like an opponent, Zimba, turned the Zimba into bases and still ran my Olaf into like a Lilo or a Maleficent or wherever it was in play. So I think that's really important too. Um, but in all in all, I just felt that I didn't need, I didn't need Teeth of Ambitions, which is the reason we didn't play it. But everything else about this list really was designed for one thing in mind. And everything, you know, leading up to this point is telling you that in the mirror match, you have to win the die roll and you have to play Minnie Mouse and you got to turn your card sideways until the end of time. Well, how I felt about that was that if I could be better than Minnie Mouse on turn three, so if my opponent's play was turn three Minnie Mouse and they're too low a turn, and my turn three is Arthur, and I am for Laura turn, right. right? Then I now have to, I have now become the aggressor on the draw, which every single time I did that, my 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 honest belief is that majority of my opponents had no idea how to react. They didn't understand that they had lost control of the game. So by the time they did figure out that they have lost their tempo swing in the game, it was too late. They'd already allowed me to go too many turns. They'd already like inked their answer to LeFou. Like they had just not even once figured out that I would be able to win the game on the draw. And which is the exact reason why I ended up winning six of my Ruby Amethyst mirror match games on the draw with this deck, because my opponent just had no idea what was even happening before it was way, 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 way too late. So how often were you able to protect Arthur without LeFou? Uh, so there was a couple of things that, that can be done here. Obviously, what I think should be stated is that I'm incredibly aggressive with him. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was constantly, you know, if if on if I had him on turn three and I didn't have LeFou, that's fine, right? Play my rabbit, lure, return rabbit to my hand, make my opponent react. Like if my opponent spends turn five on the play, Mowing my Arthur, he's not gaining lore. He's not, you know, he's not 
pressuring, they're not pressuring the game further, they're not moving the game any further because they have to take a turn off to answer my character, which mm. gives me another turn to once again trade that tempo. If I was able to come back, draw two cards with Rabbit, find more answers back in, in the game by making them kind of time walk themselves, that's where it became powerful. Now, I did play four LaFuse for a reason, let's be honest. So, like, yeah, 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 sure. I didn't have too many on, I didn't have that many games where it wasn't there. But there were a certain amount of times where I did, you know, you can fly my Arthur as well and said, hey, figure it out. Okay. Um, so that was kind of like in, in like in that question, it was kind of like spot five and six for even more LeFou's. What I will say is that LeFou, I think, is just great, period. Um, like even in games where I didn't have Arthur, you know, where my opponent was playing crabs for my Minnie Mouses, if they were going to Minnie Mouse my crab, if they were playing fidgets, um, you know, like any of those types of answers to Minnie Mouse, I was still just LeFooing and readying Minnie Mouse. There was a game, I think, there was actually one game where I think I ended up having, like, two Minnie Mouses and four LeFous in play. Like, mm. It's like, all right, like, this, this is where we're at. Um, so I, I do think that it is that. But I what, I what I really did enjoy about this list is that it really gave me the opportunity that at any given moment, Arthur has the ability to just do five, and I think that that's what's really difficult for some players to to interact with. And you know, I know in the game that I lost, I lost because of Arthur. Uh, that was in what in my in my early loss in the tournament. It became it was both of the games I lost were because of Arthur. So I thought it was interesting that a lot of my games were won with it, and then two of the games I lost were against it. You guys in chat have been awesome. You guys have been firing off here. Uh, anything interesting we've seen here, Scott? Because like it was all there's a there's a lot there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot about Pan Shadow, and I think the thing that people don't understand about the card is okay. that, and this is something that I learned as the weekend went on, is that you already have rush characters in play, right? Like Fox, usually just Fox at the time, yeah. Or even or if you play it, like you can play it. A lot of people think like I'm gonna play Pan Shadow, then I'm, then my Maui has a base. But like the fact of the matter is like your your fox that was in, or that's in play with like one damage left on it or on it also has evasive. Yeah. So like you you're gaining evasive on a character that's already in play. So you you basically like can you can just like if you play fox on three and then they put, like if if you play pan shadow on four your fox has evasive. Like, so you're actually gaining something without even necessarily have, being able to do anything with Shadow, like, right away. If for some reason there's nothing that you can take out with it. Like, it has use to protect the characters that you already have in play without actually needing to... Like, it affects the board without actually needing to physically take something out, which I thought was really interesting. I, I had a game where on turn three, Fox came in, took something out. I can't recall exactly what it was. It had damage on it. And then on turn four, I played Pan Shadow, and I just lured with Fox for four turns. Right. <laughs> like, eventually it traded off into something when it was necessary, but the fact that I was just able to keep a Fox just hanging out in play and be, like, the greatest fidget ever, right? Like, <laughs> just like, yeah, like, that can happen. Uh, I had a ton of games where Pan Shadow came in, took out Maleficent Sorcerers, like, left and right. Like, I, I, I ate... I, I couldn't even tell you like four or five Maleficent sorcerers on the day, which was great because Panchetto comes in with rush, takes a guy out and then he's just there because now they have to figure out how to deal with this two, three evasive, which is only has one health left, but if he's evasive, they don't have answers for it. It's great. Yep. 
Um, Maui, I think I had Maui come up as evasive one time, uh, but as great as it sounds, like you don't need it. It's really, it really is more about that Fox play, which I think is uh, the biggest realization of how powerful that card is. But even just being what it is um, as a two, three rush character. Now we do play in this weird game now where it's normally not good enough, but it also still enables that weird world where Minnie Mouse plus Pan can take out an opposing Minnie Mouse. Um, and then you still have yours. You have to take off a turn to do that. So it might not always be great, but it is an option. It just gave more and more options. And it's to the point now where like, I would feel more comfortable playing more pan shadows and then just not playing. You can fly at all uh, and be kind of happy with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Is there anything else before we move on to the lady Tremaine thing? I, I, I mean, and I'd love to hear people, right? I really do. I'd love to hear the comments here about lady Tremaine. I feel like in the first few weeks, lady Tremaine was like the greatest card ever. And then in most of the games that I have played, Lady Tremaine either ends up being like the premier win more card of like your opponent is on such a bad draw that they have to play into your Lady Tremaine and then you just brutally punish them for it. Or it eats a Cusco or an Olaf or a Minnie Mouse or a Maleficent Sorceress. Like it, it, like it got to the point where in games where the Lady Tremaine was just not doing what it was supposed to be doing, almost to the point where I'm like, man, I would just rather play Dragonfire, but I can't play Dragonfire because I still need a body, right? Like, I don't know. What 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 is your thoughts through the weekend with Lady Tremaine now? So I think your opponent being forced to basically pay an extra one ink for all their major hitters is positive because you can have a hand where they're dan you're they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't like if they choose not to first if they choose not to if they choose to play around Tremaine, they could be playing it to be prepared so i think not if your opponent like if it was open deckless or if it was a top eight and your opponent knows you don't have it you're i think that's worse sure um i think i'm at the point now where i could like play two because i found myself bouncing it back a lot with snakes and rabbits i mean snakes and um foxes so like I'm at the point now where I could probably cut it down to two because because drawing like two or three of them was really annoying. <laughs> um, so I mean she still provides two lore. Her stats aren't great, I'll give you that. But like she sometimes a lot of times she eats a fox. There's so a lot of times she's two for one regardless. But your opponent is being forced to play for, behind, and a lot of times that means that like that one three or whatever that's easy ink they can't ink. Sure. Especially if you have one of like if she's just sitting in play, a lot of times she's going to be bounced because like you have eight bounce cards in your hand or whatever. And they, a lot of times you've seen you bounce my bounce, bounce my bounce. Like you know they know you have it, right? So like you can get into like a, a soft lock situation with all their good characters. So I mean, to me, I think not having it in the control, more controlling versions, is is a mistake. But I think playing like a play set of it and four of it is is also a mistake because she just gets stuck in your hand a lot, in my opinion. So at Pax Unplugged, we played the baby Tremaine. Yeah. Um, I think I enjoyed her more because of the ability to play her for four. Because I actually felt I felt that she was more impactful in that place because like 
on the play, if your opponent just, you know, just had Minnie Mouse, for example, like if that was what their their turn three play was sure. after you were able to eat their fox, like you were able to like on turn three or on turn four, like nuke their Minnie Mouse, which you can't really do. Or you were able to on turn three, nuke their Arthur and things like, or turn four, I should say, to nuke their Arthur. And then what I also enjoyed is that when you bounce that back, you were able to now also gain a lore and take another guy later in the game. And I felt like that's become more difficult to do just because playing the baby Tremaine is even more difficult now because of uninkable spots and things like that. But I felt that it was just closer to like the tempo that you need it from the card. Sure. And then while I agree, like having this extra one cost for all of like to keep my Ursula in play, I have to have X. Right. Like, I agree right. that that's a, that's a penalty. But I also think that when you're on the draw, um, it's not a very good card. Like it's it, it like it's only good when your opponent isn't playing optimally, and that's where I think it sucks because it's like if you're behind in games, you you're like you're just praying that your opponent like doesn't have it so you can get back in the game. But if they just have it, you're just like, well, I have this six card six cost card that's going to get rid of a one drop. Like it's it just felt like, man, um, I don't know. I didn't. It's weird. I really like the card. I think it's great. But I also I I didn't really miss the card on the day either, so it, it's hard to argue. And I, I another thing, I thought she was phenomenal with Arthur at Pax Unplugged. I was really into mm-hmm. um, that, like those play lines. That that was a definitely a winning strategy for me at Pax Unplugged in several games where I was just like, all right, turn you know whatever after turn after be prepared. My next turn is Arthur, Lady Tremaine. You go, and it's like, what are you going to do for the rest of the game? <laughs> so I think she's she's a lot like. She's a lot like Sapphire Steel needing to grab your swords. Sure. One is not enough, but like, and like having two is where you really like the game really turns around, in my opinion, especially when you go like Tremaine, Tremaine. But you can do that with the same one, is the point. Sure. That's where I, that's where I came into it, came into it. Like it just gives you a better target for like your snakes and foxes. That's where, that's, that's where I, uh, that's where I came from with it. That's fair. The Saturday top eight breakdown was five Ruby Amethyst, two Amber Amethyst, and one Steel Amethyst. <laughs> eight Amethyst decks in top eight, Scott. Uh, I said yeah. my piece on the meta report, but what uh, what do you have to say about that? I mean that 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 was. I remember. I think we we're at dinner, and I just said it. I was like, you know, yep. There was thirty two goats, thirty two rabbits, and thirty two foxes all in the top eight, and thirty two snakes, and right, just, 30, what, right. I forgot. Yeah, I, I didn't even say snake at the moment, but yeah, it was. Yep. Uh, thirty might have been thirty two Olafs. I don't even know. There, I, I don't think there was thirty two Olafs, <laughs> but there was certainly more than twenty five of them, probably. Right. I, I mean, it, it's just an engine that that works for any archetype. Yeah. Like if there were, I mean, it was in what amber, ruby, and steel. So yeah. And I was, was there anything, there wasn't anything else on the weekend that was also using it. So it's not like it was like emerald or anything like that, right? Uh, there was no emerald amethyst, no. Um, and there was no sapphire amethyst. Right. But if there was, we would just had more 32 copies of those cards. So yeah, you still would have just had right. more of those cards for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it it, it was, man, like, especially after last week doing the meta report for the tournament, like, for, like, the like the whole season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing those numbers and then going into a 5K and then just 
seeing that play out, I'm just like, mm, yeah, I, I, it was like an easy prediction to kind of see those things. But again, like the cool thing about this tournament layout, right, is like two Amber Amethyst, one Steel Amethyst, three Aggro decks in a field of Ruby Amethyst, you know, mid-range control decks. There were some variations of, of Aggro, but I don't, I'm pretty confident that none of these five were any of the like Aggro type in top eight. No. So you didn't see like that, you know, that, that turnover. But uh, in this one, Steel Amethyst, you know, was able to go to the top. I know he played against an Amber Amethyst in top eight. Uh, I don't know the rest of his run, but I assume from there, it was very likely Ruby Amethyst, Ruby Amethyst. Um, and they played like right next to each other, but I, I would assume so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you can see him in the picture there, if you squint uh, or if I can make it bigger, I guess, you know, you might be able to see he's playing against uh, actually the, my opponent that I lost to in round three, uh, the Amber Amethyst deck here. And then Robert, the winner right there is your steel Amethyst on the right. Um, yeah. So that was, it, it was an interesting, like for that deck to come out on top. Um, after talking to Robert, I, I understand a little bit more. We are actually going to be doing an interview with Robert this week. Uh, I think Thursday is the plan for that. So you guys will probably see it Friday or Saturday or something like that. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Again, um, if you're watching this afterwards, you can hit me in the comments or leave something in the Discord for Robert so I can ask him the questions for you guys. Lots of good comments on the meta report today, you know, asking about his mulligans and his play draw strategy and things like that. So Really, it's been covered to this point so far. But, Scott, take away from the 5K um, after seeing that top eight. Pretty typical what I expect. I mean, like, I, the, the other three decks were impressive. I mean, the, the, the aggro decks making it was impressive to me. Um, and I think it ultimately shows you, I think you, I don't know if you mentioned this in the report or not. Like, it shows you the lack of, like, steel at the tables. Yeah. And especially sure. at the top tables after like round four. I, I'm telling you, I played, I think it was round four. It was round four or round five. I played against Steel Sapphire. But in yeah. every other round, I, I did not see a Steel deck at the top tables. Like I was in the top 10 or 12 tables pretty much the entire tournament. And I do not recall ever sitting down and looking left or looking right and seeing Steel deck. I just didn't see them on Saturday. Yeah. So and that really hurts those aggro decks, obviously. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, like we, we've said before, like, hey, listen, uh, if Steel doesn't exist, this deck is great. And and like two of them in the top eight just shows you that hey, Steel wasn't like it wasn't the call for people this weekend. People were not playing Steel songs. They really weren't that many Sapphire Steel decks on Friday or Saturday. Obviously, two of them ended up top eighting on Sunday, but smaller tournament, less people in the room, yada, yada. Um, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I, I, I think it made perfect sense for those two decks to make top eight because in the world that I was sitting in, there was nothing but Ruby Amethyst to be played against. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So um, – I have RJ in here. This is RJ's deck list. He's been in chat the whole time. I purposely put it on here to, in case he wasn't here tonight, to shout out that his name was RJ and not Richard. So <laughs> once again, shout out to RJ. RJ looks like he's playing uh, the Yizmas, which I pointed out earlier. I think he's been talking about him in chat. It's really hard to keep up and talk. But, uh, you know, Yizmas is a card that 
I, you know, it was a lot of those early on. Um, I think we, we played them at PAX Unplugged, if I remember. Um, yeah, it's two of them. Two of them. I don't, I don't so, think I ever got into play once. But, you know, again, here you see it. You see Pan Shadow. Pan Shadow was all over this, like, this tournament. Like, all over it. But all three days had Pan Shadows. So this wasn't, like, some uh, big surprise or, you know, coming from this weekend. Because, you know, he's been showing up more and more recently. There was a, an event in Texas where I think three of the top eight decks had it in it. I think there were, like, three of the same exact decks. So I think there was... Three of them that had it in there, and then a couple weeks ago was showed up here. There, so it's definitely been coming out more and more that this is a card that you should probably be playing in your decks. Um, so yeah, uh, so he's we're shouting out. So the Yzma here apparently is great versus Mufasa. I only played against one Mufasa the whole weekend. Um, I don't know about you, Scott. I that was another deck that I just didn't see much of. You know, how many times did I play? I think once. I think once also. That sounds about right. Okay. I watched your match, obviously, against it that one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as Emerald decks go, like, through the weekend, uh, if, it, if it wasn't Emerald Steel, I don't think it, it was there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't see any. Emerald like, I didn't anything. see any other Emerald decks aside from Emerald, Emerald Steel at all. So, I, I don't know. Hard to say. Um. And then we I had another shout out for Dick Burns here. This was his deck. I showcased it in the meta report as well. Um, you know, what was interesting about the conversations that I've had with Dick was like he came to me and he said, I feel like this game is if you are playing on the same level as another player, right? So if you and I are playing 50 games, it'll likely end 25 to 25. Uh, because in most cases, it comes down to skill versus the player you're playing against. And if the player you're playing against matches in skill level, then it comes down to luck. How do you feel about that comment, Scott? I mean, I, I think it comes down to variance. I don't think there's such a thing as luck. But I mean, yes, I understand what he's saying. Um, I, I do believe that the... Because um, I, I just don't believe there's any influence over variance. That's just my... Just what I have. I know it's just a subtle difference but right i mean luck variance it's it's very close to the same right. thing right right it's just variance in one's favor i, I don't know that's you know whatever. on a small sample set i agree um but i mean i have noticed that in in a defined metagame where, where you know what the plays that people are going to make i totally agree that like when when you know what's going to happen it, it comes down to like whether or not you're making the right plays. But the problem is this game is very, is more complicated than that. Like you could make it, you could make the wrong ink decision on turns one through three and then not have like answers for the late game that your opponent winds up having. And you can, you can, they could draw them as the game goes on and it could look that way. But on, on the other hand, they could held them in their hands since turn one. And then they have a better late game than you do. For example, if they drew a bunch of early game and decided like, oh, I'm going to ink my one drop, play a one drop, or I'm going to, Versus I'm going to ink my dragon and play a one drop. And then on turn nine, they have a dragon and you don't. So I, I think it comes down to like, if you're both playing absolutely perfectly where like, and all that happens, then I can see it. But, you know, I'm not sure that that's always the case considering how many decisions in this game there are to make compared to like other games where the resources are more defined for you. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the ink choices are, 
are always going to be the most difficult, but I also think they're, they're the most forced in some situations. So like, sometimes you just, you, you got to ink the card, you know, like, yeah. there's not, like there's not yeah. really a choice. Uh, so we can call it a play mistake, right? Like we can say like, Oh, like the, they made the mistake because they inked X over Y. But if the choice is like, you know, super limited, then it's really difficult to say like, Oh, that was the clear mistake. Um, especially it, definitely early on in games, I think, cause you're, you know, you're so forced to having to get to four to rabbit to having to get to five to Maui or having to get to six to lady Tremaine, you know, et cetera. So like when you, when you start sculpting at your hands and start looking at those things, that's the most difficult, I think, points of the game. What I think is more interesting about it is the later the game goes, it does become more and more draw dependent. But it also becomes this game of like cat and mouse of when it's really worth it to risk your game. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that this for me uh, is something that I, I see all the time. I feel like players, once you get into the end game, you just like you're always playing with he has it, you know, like and I get it. I think we've, we've grown with this mindset of always assuming that our opponent has the answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what some players need to adapt to is that. Well, if he has it, I lose the game. But if he doesn't have it, then it's the only way I can win. And, and I think that that's a key factor in going second, is that your opponent's not always going to have it. And if you have it and you're able to take control of it, then you need to do that because that's the only way that you actually might be able to find a way to win. And that's my biggest takeaway for me. I feel like I play way more loose with those things where I'm just like, you know what? Like, this is my game plan here. This is what I believe after looking at my opening hand, knowing what's going on in the game, that this is the way that I can sculpt like how to win. And if I didn't do that all the time, obviously I don't do it every game, but it's like, if I didn't do that more often, I probably put myself in a position where I'm just always trying to answer what my opponent's doing rather than forcing my opponent to answer what I'm doing. And I think that's like my biggest takeaway is I agree that, you know, some games are going to come up to variance. Some games are going to come up to, hey, we played perfect till turn eight, turn nine. And then my opponent drew two goats to my one goat, right? Like, or my opponent drew the goat and the bounce and I didn't draw the bounce, whatever. Like you can get to those points in game state. But I also think that it comes into theory of understanding that you need to be risky sometimes to get that reward. And I fear that not enough players are are taking those risks and they're just kind of really like making the match longer in hopes that they're able to figure out another way to win when their line to win the game is there and they just have to take it. Um, and that's kind of my big takeaway from it, I think. No, that's fair. I mean, it's more of a poker mentality. I'm surprised you don't play as much poker considering that's really a very big poker mentality. But yeah. Uh I mean, I played a lot of poker in my teens, you know, when it was illegal, but uh, <laughs> like, I definitely have studied poker, you know, for sure. But I, I don't know. For me, it's just one of those where I think this game, I think the game being on the draw is is difficult. I, I, I think it's very fair for all those people that are upset when they lose die rolls. I really do. But at the same time, you got to break, you got to break the wheel, right? Like you have to present this way to win games. And sometimes by presenting the way to win games is punching your opponent in the face and seeing how they recover. And that's just the real truth is that sometimes when you do the unexpected, your opponent 
doesn't know how to answer you. Uh, so I think that that's just something to take away is, is my, my key takeaway for it. Uh, so we weren't there on Sunday, Scott, but the top eight for Ruby Amethyst, two Sapphire Steel, one Steel Amber. I've heard mixed reviews of it being the fifth Ruby Amethyst or being the third Sapphire Steel. <laughs> Regardless, um, shout out to these players. We decided to go home uh, because we uh, we wanted to be home. But, <laughs> you know, it really did follow through the weekend. Even if it is just for Ruby Amethyst, it's still 50% of the of the event, right? Still 50% of the, of, of the tournament. Um, Statfire Steel finally gets there though. That was, I guess the big takeaway is that each, each day a, a different deck found its way into a top eight. So uh, Emerald Steel on Friday and then the Amethyst Steel on Saturday and then Sapphire Steel on Sunday. Um, and then Amber Steel on Sunday too, right? Yeah. Oh, and then the Amber Seal Agro Tiana deck too, as well. So, like, that was another deck that you know, it was there in little number. I, I, I feel. I honestly feel that I saw more Amber Steel Agro decks than I did Amber Steel Flute decks throughout the weekend. Okay. Uh, if I'm being com- like completely honest, I also kept talking to Braden all weekend, so I knew he was always like in the top tables at some sort. So I knew that it was like around. Um, but I don't know. I guess the the interesting takeaway here is that Steel was able. To get there, and ironically, no Amber Amethyst was able to get there on day three because of the right. prevalent yeah, yeah. deal there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how do you feel about that that transition through the weekend? Let's let how do you feel about that transition to the weekend? And then talk to me about this concept of like three events, same location, similar prize pool, similar player base, and those decisions of making that like changes each day. I mean, I don't think a lot of people made deck. I didn't see anybody that I recognize make a deck change decision, which I thought was really interesting. So, well, yeah, you, but I mean, like it was uh, not many people made like, but even you could argue that it's like 15 card difference. In no, I can tell you that I played a 45 card Ruby Amethyst right. deck and then right. just changed how I was going to win games. That's right. It's, I'll tell that every day of the week. Right. So if you don't count that as a different deck, like no one, I didn't see anyone like, oh, I'm going to bring Mufasa this day. I'm going to bring Amber Steel the next day. I'm going to bring Ruby Amethyst third day. Like, no one did that. that I no. Um, but I mean, the results of the third day, like you said, no aggro decks making it because, and no discard decks making it either because Steel was more prevalent. Right. Maybe that was influenced by the winner of the 5K or something like sure. that. So that does make sense. So that's the first point. Um, to your second question, I thought it was great. Like, I, I thought it was really cool that, like, you could play in three different events over the weekend. And it felt like, like, I know this is stupid, but, like, it, it's called SCG Con. But I never really thought of it as a convention. Like, sure. Like, because, not just because it's all in one room, not because, like, but it just didn't, it just felt like tournaments, not a convention. But in reality, when I go to a convention, I'm only playing in certain tournaments. I'm not there to, like play D and D on a Friday and play Larkana on a Saturday. Like I'm not doing different things. So in fairness, like it's pretty much the same thing, but like this felt like a convention. Okay. Because, because every day you had something new to do and it was just cool. Like it was cool to be at that type of, of event as opposed to basically just like going to your local playing for the day. Even if you went to a, you know, if you were, even if you went to a different local the next day. Sure. 
Um, but the fact that it was all in the same location, like we got used to where we were going, we saw the same people, like it just felt we ate more... the same bagel place every morning. Right, right. It just felt more communal, I guess you could say. And I don't know, it just felt normal, like being at a convention. Even I know it's like I know it's called SAG Con, but it still just feels like a tournament to me. Sure. But at the same time, like but I walked away actually making it feel like a convention. So props to them. Yeah. And like I will say, I don't know if you've already said it like before, right before I got on, like they ran a great event. I mean, and I'll, I know this is stupid, but like I lost my air, one of my pairs of AirPods at one point. And like, not only were they turned in, but like they made me prove that they were my AirPods by connecting to my iPhone. And like one of the AirPods was still lost and somebody turned it in later and they knew it was mine and they, they gave it back to me right away. Like, I just thought it was like the lost and found was really well run. Like the tournaments were really well run. Like the, the fact that you had, the pairings on your app and they posted them meant that like, if you were still stuck in the nineties, you could still find your, your pairings. <laughs> if you were to turn your necklace All right. physically and not just do it on Google sheets, you could still do that again. Yeah. Like if you're, I owner, tell you what, I guess. Uh, a lot of game losses for that though. Right. There was, there was, there was like three or four game losses in the 5k that were awarded because people didn't have their necklace ready within like the time the tournament started. Right. So I guess if you're still boomering it, like you can, you can turn your deck list on paper. Like it just, I, I thought it was a really well run event. And yeah. like, I, I fully honestly haven't been to one of their events in years. Fair. Probably since I played magic. Cause I don't think they, cause I don't, Oh no. Well, probably since wow. The one time they had like a couple wow events at the end. Oh of yeah. 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 In Philly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember that. I mean, how long has that been? Like uh, double digit years, right? Like, like 13, right? Yeah, yeah. So 11 years, yeah. So, I mean, I, I was really impressed, to be honest with you. Yeah. All right. So I, I had, like, mentioned this in the uh, in the meta report. But since we're here and we have a question about it, the extra prizes for top eight receiving buys for the 5K not being announced was insane. If that was announced, I would have played in the 5K on Friday. What is your feelings about this just in general? These are not, they were not prizes. Okay. Okay. I, I want to state that they were okay. not prizes. The issue is if they're having the event at a venue that forces you to leave at a certain time of the night, uh -huh. they have no choice but to have the, the top eight the next day. So they gave, we got done, I think around, we got done in enough time to yeah. actually finish the event that night. Absolutely. So they, uh, they told players, First, you're going to vote to see whether or not you're going to split the money. Yeah. Then you're going to vote to see whether or not we're going to play the event tonight. And if, if the answer to both of those is to any one of those is no, you're either playing for all the money or the regular, whatever the prize split is. And we're going to play tomorrow. That's when it's like, well, we can only start at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So if you, like, we're not going to deny you from playing in the 5k. So we have to basically give you these buys, but it's like, that wasn't announced even to the people that were making the decisions as to what to do in the top eight. So I yeah. think it's a like if the venue if it was that venue in California that had the you know 15 hour one piece event I'm sure it wouldn't have been a problem because they could have ran it through the night, but when you have a venue that that forces you to leave I think at nine o'clock to clean the place you think that's what it was it's something like that because I think they said they couldn't start any events like past a certain time uh, that, it, it had to be they might not be able to say it had to be a little later than that i don't know exactly whoever was still in the top eight if you're in chat um if you have any idea how long when like when the 5k ended uh let me know um because we left 
we left around like seven or seven thirty. Yeah, uh, I think on Friday, and they were just starting the top eight. So I had to, I had to imagine that that the went vote, the vote for her. Yeah, right. So I don't know. Um, I think that's tough to say. What what I think is, what I do think is difficult, right? Is that if that's even on the table, right? Like because even if even if they did decide it Friday night, right? Like even if they decide, all right, here's our options, and the judges had a meeting about it or whatever. That's fine, right? Like that's that's where it got to. But if that is the precedent moving forward, then I do think it should be public information. That's fair. That's fair. But I mean, it wasn't like it, it wasn't necessarily going to be that way. <laughs> in the top eight of the five k, the judge said, "Please do not make us finish in the lobby." And that he would be enforcing us to play at a reasonable pace. Right. right. Exactly. So there you go. Like, so it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like, if they had gotten, if we had had one less round, for example, this wouldn't have even been an issue. Absolutely. Um, So, and like, we don't really need to have that, but it was, uh, it was clearly a debacle with the round thing as well. There was a lot of confusion amongst different judges. I know. I had walked up to the head judge at one point and he told me that it was only seven rounds. And then we sat down for round seven and all of a sudden they made an announcement that it was eight rounds. So that was a little bit confusing, but yeah, um, Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll have to see, uh, you know, like it's one of those things where I'm not really sure what happened there, but it was weird to me that I legitimately asked the head judge like, Hey, how many rounds are there? And he said, Hey, there's gonna be seven rounds. I'm like, all right, that's cool. And then I sit down for seventh round and they go, oh, by the way, there's eight rounds. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not drawing this round. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't know. But I I just think that it's it was interesting to to see it come out that way. It's obviously like there's no doubt about it. Getting two rounds of buys in another tournament is uh, is really, really powerful explicitly when you can do that out of a 45 person player event. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. They had to, like you said, they had to do what they had to do with the time that they were given. Uh, what I can say is that now that we know about it, now that we're reporting on it, now that we're kind of telling everyone about it, you, if you're planning on going to Philadelphia, you just know that, Hey, Friday, this might happen. Now, granted Valley Forge is a casino. They might not care how long you're there. So maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know the answers to those questions, but that's true is what it is uh Atlanta might be another story again but now it's just the fact that like hey we know about it the other thing um this is just like player things that like I don't think anyone really knew or understood how SEGCon runs its business uh we didn't get cash for winning you know so Mm -hmm. when you go you sign up um what was it a 1099 I think or W2 it's a W whatever it was like I had to fill out paperwork for top 16 and I had to whatever and then they're going to send me a check so if you're planning on going to these tournaments don't expect to say oh i top eight it i won five hundred dollars they're going to hand me five hundred dollars cash that's that's not going to happen it's it's a it's a check that you're going to get in like weeks from then so you did that every event and wow also by the way absolutely i'm not <laughs> first of all i'm not the one complaining about yeah. this i could yeah. i don't care if they handed me like a i don't know a, a, an enchanted arthur or some crap like that would have been fine but like I didn't need a hundred dollar bill in my hand that day, but players go to these tournaments expecting something. So I'm just kind of setting that expectation that like yeah, these aren't cash events. Like you're not going to get cash handed to you. It's not like your local store 
that just says, oh, by the way, we're having a 1K today and I'm handing out $200. Like, no, that's not happening. It, it is a check. You got to fill out a W-2, which means if you go to multiple SEG cons this year and you win over a certain amount, you might have to pay taxes on it. Like, all of this stuff is just important to know for players moving forward. That's all I'm saying. We are not tax professionals. I am not a tax professional. I don't know anything. I ask Scott every question under the sun. I'm not a tax professional either. <laughs> I just know a lot about it. All right, Scott. Um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I do want to do uh, two things real quick. So I want to talk about tournament preparation. And this is, a, this is a bit of a video I have coming up that I'm working on this. But uh, goals, right? Tournament preparation I think one of the first things I wanted to discuss is goals. So, Scott, for this weekend, right, every single player at that event might have had a different goal. Every single player might have had the exact same goal, right? But I think it's important to, as with any level you're at, in any event you're going to, you should have a goal in mind, right? Can we agree on that? Yeah, totally. All right, cool. So for this past weekend, for as an example here, what was your goal of the weekend? Just to play well. And have a good time. Right. So just to just to point this out, right? Yeah. Scott Landis playing games forever. His goal for the weekend was to feel good about his play. Right? That that's a legitimate like goal that he had in mind. Another player's goal, you know, let's just use Robert, you know, Robert Serpe's goal in the end might have been, hey, my goal is to win the 5K. Great. He accomplished his goal. Uh Dick Burns, he told me that he normally only goes to tournaments to play in qualifiers to get qualified. So his goal for any tournament he goes to is to qualify for the important tournament later on. Uh, I think it's really important that when you are focusing in on a tournament like this weekend, where you're going to have three shots at top eight, where you're going to have, you know, shots at, you know, winning $1,500 top prizes. Now, granted, I'm pretty confident they top, they split in top eight. So nobody won $1,500. They all won $524 or whatever the number was. Um, But I think it is important that when you approach these events, you need to have uh, this setting or mindset of what you're going to feel good about at the end. And it's for two reasons. The first reason is it it sets the bar, right? So now you have a bar that you want to reach, which is important because in, when, in any tournament, you should have that bar. But it also does something after the bar, after the event's over. You now get to know either how close you are to the bar, how far you went past the bar, or how far you'd like, or how like far away you are from the bar. So I think that's important. You know, I, I say this all the time. Most competitive players aren't necessarily playing to win the tournament. They're playing for top eight, right? Like that's, that's like, Hey, I am, I'm content with making top eight in a tournament. But if you're a newer player, if this was your first event that you ever went to, maybe your goal was go 500. Maybe your goal was play the entire tournament, right? Like even if I'm, I don't know, two and six, I, I was able to put myself through eight rounds of a tournament. Yep. Um, I just think that that's something that people really need to get the mindset for of when you go to these events and you're really planning out how you want to compete in them. Uh, it's very important to just set a goal for yourself. And I, what I would like to, for anyone to do here is like in the next event, whatever it is, if it's the pre-release weekend, like whatever, the, whatever it is, just start planning in your head. Like, what do I want to accomplish in that tournament? Cool. Now I'm going to go to your boy, right? We're going to quote your friend here. Uh, part of being good is being plugged into the tournament metagame, and it's extremely difficult and in some games impossible to simply develop skills in a vacuum 
then waltz in and win a tournament. And this is a quote by David Serlin. So Scott, this is the guy. You want to grab his book? So I have, look, listen, if you guys want to read the book in the description below is actually a link to it. Uh, it's a book that Scott read 20 years ago, uh, 19 years ago. It came out in 2005. Uh, 30, 30 years. No, nope, came out in 2005. Unless, oh, okay. unless that was a, a, he, had, like a he had internet posts before he had. So, yeah. So yes, he does. There's a whole website, everything. David Serlin's great. Uh, Scott through our friendship has quoted him a million times. <laughs> The book is phenomenal. I'm actually reading again now because after I started working on this tournament preparation video, Scott said, hey, you should probably go and read David Serlin again. So I, I literally bought the book and I'm now reading it again. Uh, but uh, playing to win and talk to me about that a little bit. Uh, you should just always enter with a mindset that um, to win. You shouldn't you shouldn't be upset that you're playing the best deck. You shouldn't be upset to um, it, whatever's within the rules of the game. Like don't cheat, but, but whatever's within the legal rules of the game, you should feel that you are playing it to your best advantage. You should always be playing whatever deck is best in the game that you're comfortable with. If for some reason, like you just are really bad at whatever the best deck is and this other deck you're just comfortable with, that's totally fine. Whatever gives you the best advantage. Play to win with the best options that you have in front of you. Right, right, right. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Like there's a lot of like Sun Tzu methodology that's in the book that's been adapted towards gaming and and things like that. Like, you know, there's more like technical stuff that's in the book and things like that but but the basic thing is like don't be afraid to be playing to win and don't worry that other people are like not like look down upon you for playing the meta deck or net decking or whatever and and the thing about not being in a vacuum is basically like have people that you can trust bounce bounce opinions off of like you're not gonna be able to learn anything like in a vacuum and, and things like that so i think that's a really good point as well fair enough I didn't want There's to touch on it. Yeah. I didn't want to touch on. There's a whole lot. Um, yeah. It's definitely something that we've been working on uh, as one of the, you know, one of our upcoming videos because I think tournament preparation is massive, and we have organized play coming up. The official announcement coming up in March. Hopefully, it's early in March because I want to go to cool tournaments and I want to know about when they are. Um, I have to. I got to bring this one up. Uh, Dick Burns. My goal was to get on the Meta Report since my kids watch it every week with me. Thank you for helping me with that goal. No problem. <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, final thoughts on SEG Con, Scott? It was a lot of fun. Part of my reason for going was to see people, meet people, talk to people. And I mean, you know, we're here talking. We, we do a lot besides just play the game. Mm-hmm. And so it's important. It was important for me to like, talk about selling cards and learn out what the dealers were. I was curious to see what the dealers were doing. And that was important to me. I was curious to, to hang out with, with people. It was, it was good for me to get away. Um, you know, that I've had some life things. So it, it was good to like, you know, get away and, 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 and figure things out. I've never been to Hartford for that long of a period of time in all my TCG playing career. It was a pretty cool city to be honest with you. It wasn't, um, I actually thought as like, a suburb city of New York, it would be like a lot more expensive. And it actually like wasn't. Um, the Airbnb was nice. The restaurants close to the, the actual convention center were nice. We paid like $13 a day for parking, which is like nothing considering. Yeah, I paid uh, validated parking was 
awesome. <laughs> Consider I paid fifty six dollars for one day in Philadelphia for Pax Unplugged. This was like nothing. Yeah. So, um, it was <laughs> yeah. a good time. It, it really was. Um, I, I, how do I say this? I hope in the future there's an opportunity to continue to go to these events, but I will say personally for me, the actual organized play with those prizes will always take precedence over, um, over events like this. So this one, we were fortunate that it was only four hours away, although more like five when you have terrible traffic on the way back. But um, it's like we were punished for not playing on Sunday. Right, right, right. right. We just sat in traffic for like a half hour at one point. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was like I like I really can't praise Star City enough for what what they did. Um, I'm not sure if it's the actual Star City team or if it's like a subsidiary of them or how that works. But I but I but to me, it's always Star City. So I'll say it's Star City Games, and and I was really impressed. Um, you know, I guess there was like, I guess it was three different games going on with Flesh and Blood, Warcana, yeah. and Magic, and like, and like the 17 versions of Magic. Yeah, right, right. And I got to see a bunch of Magic cards I haven't seen in a hundred years. I got to oh, that was cool for me is like to walk to the deal. I don't, I don't know how to say this, but like when I go to the dealers and they have like Magic collections that just blow me away. It, to me, it's like looking at fine art. Like it's right. just, it's very impressive to me to see like. Here's my 30 moxes, like, and 10 of them are beta. And, like, it's just really impressive to me, to, to what I see. So, um, I was impressed. Um, you know, there's, like, I think there was, like, 10 or 11 dealers there. And I'm, like, how do you all make money? Yet they all had people at every booth. And I was just really impressed by that. You know, it's funny. Um, the SEG Harper page was, like, a million years long, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the SEG Philadelphia page is not like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like you could just scroll down and they're all right there, you know, like Strike Zone, Card Monster Games, 95 MTG, Toa Magic, Mighty Meeple, Magnola, Level Up, Galactus Roma, Card Cash, Cool Stuff, Mystic Forge. Like they were all there. And we would have known that if like you could actually get to the bottom of FGG Hartford's page. You just couldn't. Uh, so whatever they did to reorganize yeah. FGG Philadelphia's page was was much better. So the the food at the convention center like like the snacks they were good the bathrooms were situation was good the people working there were nice the convention center itself was cool i didn't get to go i really wanted to i really wanted to walk over to the bridal show at one point i just totally forgot that it was even there should have done that that was right next to us because like i love the dichotomy when there's those things going on I remember one time at, we were playing at WoW Nationals and there was like a Miss Teen USA going on at the same time or Miss USA. And I just thought it was so funny that like here were us and here was like Miss USA. And it was just hilarious to me. So Fair. with this bridal show, I should have just walked over there because I would have been funny. But Fair. I didn't get a chance. We had a couple more goals. I think this is really fun. If you're watching the after this and you want to write your goal for any tournament coming up uh, in the comments, feel free. But my goal was the top eight to play my best possible lines that are given to me and to be the best ruby amethyst player in the ruby amethyst field well you made top eight i don't know if you can say you were the best player though uh and then my goal was to test my skills to see if i could be good enough to get the stitch promo in a month that's see look that's that's the kind of shit we're talking about right that's a perfectly good goal uh setting that bar up you know scg con presented you with an opportunity to play in a big field simulate events that are coming up with organized play official um that's a great goal love it i love it in april Got- yeah, I mean, I had a blast. It was a lot of fun. Um, I've been uh, I've been stuck at home for the last few months because work is very slow. 
so getting away for the weekend was great. Uh, I, I the irony of all of our nights in the house with friends. Uh, you know, this is the first time that we had seen Stefan since COVID. You know, so shout out to Stefan. He's our boy. He's our homie. I should say. I'm sorry. If anyone met him through the weekend, you you know him. You met him. He's a fun guy. Really, really fun and funny interacting guy. Uh, Ziggy was another one that was there. His brother was there. Fortunately, Ziggy got sick. But it was cool to go away for the weekend with them. And, of course, our shout-out to Brian, uh, who doesn't even play Lorcana, but came and played Commander all weekend to have a good time. Uh, we spent our, we spent our nights watching Ted, uh, you know, a show on Peacock on Peacock. Thursday night. And then on Friday and Saturday night, we were watching uh, beta box openings for Magic the Gathering. Yes. Yeah, that's what we got. It's, we didn't test play. No. And we collect. We watched, we watched somebody, like, say, like, was this collection I bought worth it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we watched a, a, a collection box opening. So Yes. And we watched some Rudy, too. <laughs> this is the uh, the final goal home here. My goal is to be the very best, like no one ever was. Thank you, Ash Ketchum. Uh, we, what will we do without you, in all honesty? Scott, uh, thank you for joining me this evening. Chat, you guys me. were phenomenal. Uh, I, I love it. You know, we, we really enjoy doing these. Definitely after events, you know, for me – Huge takeaway from the weekend. Uh, everybody I talked to was incredible. I, I cannot thank you guys enough for all the kind words that you said to us. You know, it means a lot. You know, I'm getting a little emotional right now, honestly, but it does, it really does mean a lot when you guys come up, you say those incredible nice words, you say you enjoy the content. I had several people come up to me and say, Hey, I played this deck because you covered it and I I, I molded it and built it to be something that fit for me. And uh all those words are incredible. I, I really I really, really, really do appreciate it. And, you know, we we can't, you know, we, we love you guys. Thank you guys so much. Uh, see you in Philly for sure. SCG Con, Philly, definitely. Encounter uh, 1K next week. Uh, spoiler alert, there is a chance that you might hear more about that by the end of the week from us. I will very likely be there, but it might even be bigger than that. We'll have to see how it goes through the week. But, again, thank you guys so much for watching, uh, showing up, enjoying the live stream with us. <laughs> And I've been rambling. So, Scott, I'll catch you in the next one. See you. Thanks. See you guys.